3: Friday morning, the 17th of December. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m., this is Michael Reed on LMFM. The National Public Health Emergency Team met yesterday in a letter to government last night. NEPHID recommends reintroducing COVID restrictions
1: because it was only last night that this latest modelling information was presented. The appropriate approach was not to jump to a conclusion or to immediately offer a solution it was to say we need now to establish a plan which actually gives us a further pa- a certain path to a reopening which will not see opening and then closing again.
3: Unfortunately, that approach articulated there by the Green Party leader Eamon Ryan might not apply today, but we have been here before.
4: Uh, Ireland was an outlier in not opening up indoor hospitality to everyone. Uh, as weeks go by, we look like less and less of an outlier. Some countries reimpose restrictions and others are now going down the route that we're going down uh, in terms of a health pass because it's the only way to stay open.
3: Thornish Leo Vratker reminding us of uh, the government's recent determination that if they allow something to open up again after COVID restrictions. You don't go and close it down again.
1: As I've said repeatedly, we are determined to do everything we can to ensure that when we open the sector of our society, our economy,
3: it stays open. The Taoiseach, Mihal Martin, but everything seems to have changed.
5: Now, what has changed now, of course, is the emergence of the new variant, Omicron. We know it's taking over from the Delta variant quickly, Uh, We know it's uh, significantly more transmissible.
3: Yesterday, the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, spelt out what that means for us all today.
5: Last week, the Omicron variant made up about 1% of all new cases in Ireland. By the weekend, it had gone from 1% to 5%. By Tuesday, we were reporting 14% of new cases were now the Omicron variant. And I can confirm to the House now that as of today... It's 27 percent of all new cases. So we've gone from one percent to 27 percent in about a week.
3: The Minister the min- for Business, a uh, bigger pardon, the Minister for Business, Employment, and Retail, uh, Damien English, joins us now. Good morning, Minister, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, this is a, a really depressing place for all of us to be in to wake up to a week before Christmas.
6: Uh, Good morning, Michael, and good morning morning, to listeners. Uh, Absolutely, Michael. This is not the news uh, anybody's wanted, Um, but I think people can see for themselves what's happening over the last week or 10 days with the spread of this new variant right across Europe and beyond, and uh, the changes that all these countries are putting in place. It is quite serious. It's become a very dominant variant, uh, and we have to uh, allow for that and plan for that and try to make sure that we put in place the right approach and strategy to protect and save lives and also to, to keep the pressure off our health system coming into January and February. Mm. It's a very, very difficult place for anybody, for people, for their families, their homes, people's mental health, number one, mm. then businesses, employees, jobs. It's a very difficult situation. And you're right, yeah. you know, there's been different interventions over the last 18 months but COVID, uh, you know, if eventually and the different variants, like it's guess, all the plans up in the air. But the best the, thing the vaccines
3: do... really seem to give us uh, the road out of this, and there was an air of confidence. We weren't going to go backwards again. We weren't going to close down things that had reopened uh, and so on, but here we are. It's taken everybody su- by surprise despite all of the hard work and effort that's gone into it. It, it, it yeah. is undoubtedly a terrible disappointment for everybody, for everybody in it, government, everybody listening to us today it. as well. Yeah, um, what what, are you, what 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 are you I'm, expecting I'm, to hear? What 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 are you expecting the government to announce today? What is our fate, in other words?
6: Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, two things, Michael. First of all, it is fair to say, you're right. this Of course, this is a disappointing news for for the country that that really got in behind all the public health messaging in relation to the, the vaccination and so on. About ninety five percent plus at this stage vaccinated. You know, we all had hoped that would give us and guide us through the rest of the way COVID. But look, variants come at us. We are in a war with, with COVID-19 and it's as simple as that. And wars mean you have to update your armory and have to bring in different battles at different stages. Now we have another variant. We have to plot our way through this. I'm quite confident uh, and the science will show that, that the booster jab will give us that extra protection we need coming into the new year. That is a big focus. So whatever any plans are announced by government today, the biggest plan for all of us is the booster rollout. And last week we saw 220,000 booster jobs administered, 50,000 in one day this week. It would be up to 300,000 every week Mm. from next week on for the next six or seven weeks. So as we move through January again this country will have that protection through the booster vaccine and by all the accounts that shows that will give us the protection against this variant mm. and hopefully other ones that come out as we well will there be
3: christmas, christmas drinks next week will there be christmas parties on monday will there be sport over christmas will yeah. there be gigs what, what, what what's going to happen yeah, are they okay. going to close the pubs at five
6: yeah so, so okay so let's try and tease this through so it doesn't have like the process uh, hand over hat i have not seen Mm, I've yeah. seen the recommendations, yeah, 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 yeah. I think you mm. haven't seen it either. There are leaks in papers and media mm. Which, mm. which don't help the, the debate, but let's just focus on what might happen here. So my understanding is, is here: the aim of Neffert uh, coming into the meeting yesterday and dealing with the, the modelling they have, was they will present to Cabinet this morning, and governments will make decisions today and they will be announced tonight. So the key aims here are, are, three, are in three areas, I understand. One is around close contacts and how that is managed. The other one is around travel. And then the third one is around socialising and social mix. Uh, And there is seemingly there's recommendations coming through the media uh, and so on. My understanding is, cabins will will walk through that and see what is the best approach mm. to protect this country and its health service in the weeks ahead. Now, there's different suggestions there. Michael, we can speculate if we want, but I think it's best to try to tease through what we're trying to achieve here. Right. So I think the response. And what do you mean by proposed. travel,
3: Minister? Just, uh, I mean, people are desperate for information. Will people be able to come home for Christmas, uh, or will they have to cancel their plans if they had been planning to
6: come? Yeah, home? I, I'm not. I'm not mm. hearing of any of any, any any talk of that. But it's it's. it's some advice around some of the existing restrictions that are there. That's what the, that's what we expected. What would have, would have come from effort last night? I have not seen what has come from effort. But I think what's key though. No, there's no
3: there's no, to, no point in stopping people coming here from South Africa because Omicron I, is so rampant correct, here anyway. Yeah, ramp, correct. Okay. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, not yeah, the yeah. issue. So but you don't you, you don't think there'll be any need for people to change their Christmas travel plans?
6: Yeah, I, I don't see that coming as right. of yet. Okay, there will be, yeah. there will, but, but I would imagine there'd be really strong advice around how to manage that and and our own behaviours and testing and so on. But I think, Michael, what's key for me, what's important for me uh, as a a Minister in the Department of Enterprise, A, this is a a proportionate response. Mm. We are understanding already with the restrictions over the last couple of weeks have been devastating for the hospitality, entertainment, play and leisure Mm. sector. We have to, whoever's affected today, we have to support the, the families and the people who are affected and any of those businesses if there's any more restrictions put in place. But even without restrictions, people's reaction to the spread of this virus and, and, and applying their own logic to this is having a devastating impact on businesses already. Mm. Uh, it's important for me and I'll be working over the next couple of days with government to make sure that the supports are
3: increased. But do you expect the rugby to go support. ahead, do you expect the races to go ahead, do you expect any gigs to go ahead in the coming days for that matter?
6: My, Michael, to be honest with you there's no point in me speculating because mm. we have to actually see what NEFIT are suggesting and it's a, a suggestion based on their evidence, mm. their modelling. Well, the, 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 the leak is the, the leak so, the so
3: strong, there's no doubt they're suggesting, or recommending more so, yeah, sorry, sorry, that the pubs will close at five. Uh, and does that mean that people should cancel their weddings if they're planning on getting married in, in the next few days?
6: Yeah. I think what's what for me here is that it's really, really important that by, by six o'clock tonight, me and Martin, uh, is on the news as Taoiseach, as leader of the country, bringing yeah. clarity to all of this, mm. so can make some up Some,
3: some right. of us have nightmares with Michal Martin on the steps of government buildings. We don't want to see it again. But, <laughs> but
6: no <laughs> offence to me, but I have nightmares. <laughs> I, <of my> time, <laughs> I, uh,
3: I know. Yeah, and, yeah, and I d- didn't personal. mean it in any offensive way. But I think we were all hoping we'd never see him on the steps of government buildings again. <laughs> Certainly at- not making a, an announcement to, in relation to COVID a week before Christmas.
6: Yeah. No. Look, Michael, this is a mm. horrible position mm. to be in for anybody. I look. I think we just need to just wait and see what comes out of today because. What's, what are we trying to achieve here? And it's, it's to stop the spread of the virus. So, some of the recommendations, some of the reports in the media, we'll, we'll have to see what's the best way to do that. And we have to understand from NEFA's modelling what they are trying to achieve. I think we all know it's trying to break the chain and try to, you know, through social context. But there's different ways of doing that. I'm sure will probably have given a range of suggestions. So, let's see what's the best way to do this. I, I don't have that in front of me. I wish I did. There could be more useful this morning. Mm. Uh, but I don't. Uh, and I'm happy to tease the truth tomorrow Monday or Tuesday when when you're on again, and we have mm. this. but I think mm. people need to understand there will be absolute clarity brought to this before the end of the day, and then we'll be able to follow that pathway and I think these measures yeah. hopefully will be will be limited in time because we're still trying to understand how serious this variant is. We know it's spreading mm. rapidly, but it doesn't seem to have, 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 have be a serious in terms of hospitalizations and people getting sick and mm. and moving on to ICU. so that's that's an important part, but that that's evidence. That's still being monitored in every other country as well, and that will will dictate restri- restrictions or changes moving into the new year. But right. I think again, the focus this week, next week, and I have to compliment everybody involved in our health service the vaccination program from GPs to pharmacies to vaccination centres to be actually on the towels next year is a is a big win and that is in my view the security we mm. need protection we need coming into
3: to It, it so must be a it, absolutely and I, I think everybody agrees with that Minister but uh, on the other hand uh, and I'm sure you agree uh, it's far from satisfactory or ideal let's say it's far from ideal for those in hospitality who are here on a Friday morning not knowing if Christmas has been cancelled come Monday uh, it, it, Tell us about the legality of this. If the government was to decide that pubs, restaurants, licensed premises would have to close at five o'clock from Monday evening onwards, uh, what's involved in that? Can it it do that by law legally by Monday or um, would it be asking people to uh, 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 respect uh, the wishes of government as such?
6: Yeah, well, two things. Well, first of all, I think the best success uh, with any advice and any restrictions has been public's adherence and the public's buy-in, regardless of any of the laws. Uh, right throughout this, the reason why Ireland, in, compared to a lot of countries, uh, have, have, a, have a lower death rate from, from COVID is because of people's personal responsibility mm. and taking the message and following that and the guidance, regardless of the law. We haven't had to come to the heavy hand with the law mm. at all. In relation to any changes that are suggested today, uh, my understanding is uh, if the change is recommended, that the, 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 the laws are in place to implement those changes uh, under advice and legality. But, uh, again, we're only speculating, Michael. I, and I understand... I mean, I've worked in that sector myself
5: many years ago. Hospitality... But there'll be a legal
3: it's obligation. If, the, if that's the route the government decides, there'll be a legal obligation on people to close. It's not something that they can defy. Uh, it's not a, just a request as such.
6: Yeah. Well, what the government has done in the, in the last couple of weeks with the various uh, restrictions, they have been a kind of advice and guidance. But people oh. have very often voted with their feet. For the restaurant yeah. sector, they know, regardless of government announcements today, people are probably on the phones already making changes and cancellations mm. so it's devastating for those businesses even just the news and the leaks in the media it's devastating for them oh, yeah. we have to it's try it's to talk them away through no, this yeah, I think
3: yeah, it's that. absolutely dreadful but what what, what about ordinary people I, I mean I suppose we all have our Christmas plans in place at this stage we all know who we're having for Christmas or, all we, or else we all know where we're going for Christmas uh, will people have to reconsider that uh, if uh, the amount of households is restricted or will that uh, be something that pe- the government will be asking people to abide by. Uh,
6: again, Michael, we're, we're into the speculation, and I don't mean to be awkward, but I, mm. I haven't seen it. Uh, the advice—I think we all understand that Christmas is a very, very important time for families, uh, and we understand that. And people have suffered so much over the last eighteen months; they want the support of their families. The advice, most recent advice from effort was to still allow up to four families, including your own, to gather over Christmas time. I think again, you'll see more. Commentary around that and advice. Uh, I, I can't say I have not hear, heard of any increased recommendations coming from that, but again, it goes back to when we see efforts, letter and data and modelling, mm-hmm. what are mm-hmm. they trying to achieve, mm-hmm. which is to break the chain of the virus and um, hopping from person to person. Mm-hmm. And that's why mm-hmm. it really, regardless of any laws, Michael personal responsibility would be really key here and back to the basics okay. of our masks our hand washing yeah. and so okay. on
3: and this is in our own hands as well and that, that, that message the is, is the most important of all regardless of, of vaccines or anything else the most important message is to remember the basics and uh, without vaccines you could probably avoid Covid if you followed all of the basics all of the time which is very difficult for most of us and we are going to get calls I can see some messages coming in already Minister and perhaps you'd want to respond to uh, the criticism of the inaction, if you like, of government up to now, people will be saying this has been like a slow car crash. It was inevitable. It was always inevitable. Why did we wait until a week before Christmas to act?
6: Okay, well to be clear on that Michael, I don't agree with that uh, assertion, to be honest with you. I think governments have reacted at the right time uh, in in the majority of cases over the last 18 months. I'm not saying we got everything right because no one would claim that as you are dealing with a war like COVID. You react as best you can. Let's bear in mind here, a few weeks ago, you and I discussed the restrictions we were bringing in to try to bring Delta under control. And those restrictions and those changes, thanks to the public's adherence to them, have made a massive difference. Uh, and hospital cases have gone down to under 500 now regularly for the last couple of days. ICU beds have, have kind of steadied around the 115, 118. The number of cases have plateaued while, the, while it could have went rapidly up well mm. beyond 5,000. They're in around 4,000. So again, the right interventions were made in relation to that variant. Mm. What's changed now over the last couple of weeks is that we have a new variant, Omicron, and we have to deal with that now. And we will and are putting in changes. But what's happening now, and my understanding from from what's coming through NEPHIT, is more of a preventive strike, because it's to try to stop the spread of this virus. And And will this be the
3: last day of school for children? Uh, Will they be back in classrooms on Monday and Tuesday?
6: My understanding is there will be. Uh, There is no evidence and there's no suggestion that I've heard from NEPHIT recently, or even the leaks from last night, to suggest that there's any public health reason or rationale to reduce uh, the school times these couple of days. I understand every second parent to talk to has a different view. I'm a parent myself with four kids. I know how worrying it is, but there's no medical case or evidence being presented to us as of yet, anyway, that schools should finish tonight. So my expected schools will be open next Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. I do understand uh, some parents will make their own decisions around that as well, but the advice is is that we have to try to protect our education system, protect our schools. They are in the pods. On, on, on the mm-hmm. whole, schools have worked extremely well. Difficult circumstances because they're front-line too, like many others in retail and many other sectors, have performed quite well to protect our, our young people, and there's no evidence to say the schools are closed today, so I don't expect to, schools to close. But again, Michael, I have not seen Neffert's letter today. Maybe it's just some, just some suggestions in there. I just don't think there is.
3: Okay, well... Uh, the day is but young uh, nightmare on Elm Street, Leinster Street uh, a little bit later on around 6 o'clock uh, this evening obviously when uh, the Taoiseach uh, will most likely uh, address the nation once again uh, on the steps of government buildings, uh, a thing that none of us wanted to see as you say Minister we're all bracing ourselves uh, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll get through this uh, as uh, they say but thank you indeed uh, for joining yeah. us. And, and
6: Michael I do think and I know it's a mm-hmm. difficult time but I think people need to realise the booster programme will mean that as we come into 2022 it it will get a lot better some difficult weeks ahead of us but Mm -hmm. I think we I think we will get through this and that's important and we just have we have to knuckle down for a couple of weeks to get through this all of us together and protect each other as well
3: All right, thank you Minister for joining us this morning that's uh, Minister of State for Business, Employment and Retail Fine TD for Meath West Damien English
0: Michael Reed, Reed on, on
3: LMFM. Now, as you heard on LMFM's news, a serving member of Angarda, Shia Khan, has appeared in court uh, with uh, charges of corruption uh, against him. Uh, Paul Murphy, freelance journalist, uh, was in Trim District Court and he joins us now. And a uh, very good morning to you, Paul, and thank you indeed uh, for joining good morning, us. Good morning, uh, this is uh, 36-year-old Joseph Doyle. What more can you tell us?
7: Uh, he, uh, Joseph Doyle has an address at uh, Kilcock County Kildare and he was brought before the Trim District Court charged with 108 counts of alleged corruption under the Criminal Justice Corruption Act 2018 and also with money laundering offences. Right. The charges alleged that in his role as a public service vehicle inspector he had induced named persons at various locations in County Meath, including a Department of Environment testing centre to give him sums ranging from €20 to €250 to a total of about €800 in checks or cash for fictitious break tests or for charity on various dates between 2018 and 2020.
3: And do we know anything about those locations? Paul, was it at the side of the road or where was it?
7: No, they were in, in, in various locations throughout the county and one of them was a a test test centre, which which is known to me, and um, uh, the the people who allegedly were induced to part with money were um, individuals who'd been known to me in the the transport industry,
3: Okay. either
7: either taxis or buses.
3: Okay, there were a lot of charges. Uh, That uh, accounts for just some of them, obviously.
7: Yes. Uh, He was also charged with money laundering offences. And that—that that is uh, allegedly lodging amounts in a post office and a bank, knowing it to be the proceeds of criminal activity. Right. Uh, he was also charged then with re- refusing to allow a guard to take his photograph at a guard station at Lucan in County Dublin.
3: Right. Uh, some very serious uh, charges then. Uh, he was uh, arrested uh, at Castle Street in Trim, was it?
7: Yes, the detective sergeant gave evidence uh, yesterday that the accused had been arrested at Castle Street in Trim yesterday morning and that he had made no reply when charged. The court was told that the director of public prosecutions had directed a trial on indictment. Uh, Judge Miriam Walsh remanded the accused on his own bail of €600 euro to appear back at Trim District Court on the 10th of February next, when, it is expected, a, a book of evidence will be served on him. And, and the condition of his bail is that he should not contact any witnesses in the
3: case. Okay, uh, so uh, we won't really hear much uh, about this uh, uh, until the new year, not uh, until February. Uh, was anything else said in court, or was it a, a matter of reading the charges and uh, taking a, a plea from Mr. Doyle yesterday?
7: Uh, no, there, there was no plea entered, and Mr. Doyle didn't didn't, didn't speak during the during the hearing.
3: Okay. All right. Uh, as you say, uh, it'll uh, return to Trim District Court on uh, the 10th of February. Uh, Mr Doyle uh, is on bail at the moment. He, uh,
7: he's, on, he's, on, he's on bail on, on his appearance then at Trim District Court on the 10th of February. Very good.
3: Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, with uh, that uh, this morning. Paul Murphy, freelance journalist in Meath.
0: Michael
3: Michael Reed on on LMFM. A very disturbing story. The National Independent Review Panel, the NIRP, was established by the HSE in 2017 to review the most serious incidents within the HSE and HSE funded disability services Uh, yesterday it published its look back review or the executive summary of the management of Brandon, a pseudonym used for him and others in this report which identified 108 occurrences of sexually inappropriate behaviours by one resident of Stillwater Services referred to in the report as Brandon towards other named residents of the facility between and and 2011.
8: We now know that there were over 100 occurrences of sexually inappropriate behaviour carried out by one resident who has been given the pseudonym Brandon in the report and that there were 18 victims. We know that Brandon was moved from time to time, but while such moves gave his victims and staff respite in one area, the move allowed Brandon to carry on abusing new victims in the area to which he was moved. It was the most awful of situations. These victims were the most vulnerable in our society. They were non-verbal and placed all of their trust in the centre and the HSE to protect them. That obviously did not happen. Those victims were failed. After the bravery of the whistleblower, after the reports to HECWA and the Gardaí, the individual identified as Brandon was eventually isolated and the abuse stopped.
3: That's uh, Porik O'Loughlin of Sinn Féin uh, Donegal TD speaking in The Dáil yesterday about uh, this scandalous situation uh, that uh, occurred Uh, and as I said earlier on it really is a very disturbing uh, story of Brandon as he is uh, called in uh, this report. He was admitted to the John Smith unit in 1991 and subsequently transferred to the Stillwater complex in 2008. He remained there until his discharge to a local Nursing home in 2016. Brandon uh, had a diagnosis of mild, moderate intellectual disability and bipolar affective disorder. He also had an additional diagnosis of frontal lobe syndrome, to which a senior forensic clinical psychologist directly attributed Brandon's sexually inappropriate behavior. The first Recorded incident of a sexual assault was noted on files. It dated back to January of 1997, uh, when he was found by staff to have his hands on the genitals of another resident. The records from the 28th of January 1997 to the 3rd of December 2002 note a further three incidents of inappropriate sexual behaviour although the terms of reference of the review that was published yesterday are confined to look at incidents between 2003 and 2018. The earlier records suggest that this sexualised behaviour had been ongoing and known to managers. Prior to 2003, from 2003 the number of incidents of Brandon's sexually inappropriate behaviours increased. The first recorded incident in 2003 was when he was observed to be touching resident inappropriately. Between 03 and 11, Brandon engaged in a vast number of highly abusive and sexually intrusive behaviours. Evidence available on file would suggest the reporters say that Brandon regularly targeted particular individuals and was able to identify particularly vulnerable residents whom he pursued relentlessly. The range of inappropriate sexual behaviour by Brandon included exposing himself and masturbating in the presence of others. This behaviour was very frequent and occurred in the sitting rooms and corridors of his shared accommodation and on regular bus trips. Almost nightly, prolonged masturbation which was often accompanied by verbal obscenities being shouted at staff and other residents sexual touching and attempted touching of other residents outside of their clothing, touching the genital and intimate areas of other residents inside their clothing, attempting to and succeeding to enter the bedrooms of residents who he had previously targeted during the night, targeting particularly vulnerable residents, verbal and physical aggression to other residents and staff.
8: This can never, ever be allowed to happen again, to But even after all of this, even after all of the public cries for the publication of the report, the full report is still not being published. The Executive Summary, while detailed, is still not the full report. Tonishta, the families and the Irish public need to know all of the facts. Why continue to drag this out? The families and the public deserve the full truth. In order to properly protect our most vulnerable patients going forward, we need to learn from the mistakes here. And the Executive Summary is not enough to do that. There are continuing questions for the HSE here. The Executive Summary raises questions in relation to the management and leadership of the HSE during this period.
3: In the executive summary, we learn that the review team identified 18 residents who, it is believed, were sexually assaulted by Brandon between 2003 and 11. From November of 11 onwards, there are no further written reports of Brandon assaulting a named individual. However, there are a number of reports on file to suggest that Brandon continued to engage in inappropriate behaviour, including sexually touching other residents, publicly exposing his genitals or masturbating in public until his move to a private nursing home in May of 2016.
8: Will the government press the HSE for the publication of the full report. And Tawnishta, I'm sure that you would agree that there needs to be accountability for the failures and how all of this was managed. And so Tawnishta, given the seriousness of the issues, Will you commit to agreeing to provide time to debate this report in full at the first opportunity when the doll resumes in the new year?
3: The report says that a common management strategy employed to deal with Brandon's sexually assaultive behaviour was to move him around various wards. Brandon was moved a total of nine times in the 15 year period of this review. While each of these moves provided some respite to the staff and residents from the ward Brandon was vacating, unfortunately, they also gave him access to other residents, many of whom became new victims of his abusive behaviour. On the 22nd of December 2011, Brandon was moved to House 2 in the Stillwater Complex to live by himself away from other vulnerable residents. While this move resulted in a sharp reduction in the number of sexual assaults recorded, unfortunately, On the 5th of September 2013, he was moved back again to House 1 to live with the residents he had previously assaulted. Brandon's move to House 2 appears to be the only successful strategy employed in the management of Brandon in that it did provide some protection, albeit short-term, to other residents.
4: Uh, There are families who have been uh, deeply impacted and are deeply hurting. I think for anyone who's read or listened to the reports on the issue, Uh, They're going to be shocked and they're going to be upset about what has happened. Uh, Certainly, when I read about it, um, I first was horrified that this could have happened uh, and even felt disbelief that something like this could happen and continue to happen for a period of time. And I think all of us, um, our our thoughts are in the first instance with the individuals and families affected. uh, And I can't begin to imagine what they've been going through. Uh, this morning, and indeed uh, in the years gone by.
9: That's
3: the tarnished. Uh, the families told the review team that they were happy that a review had been commissioned which they hoped would get the truth of why this behaviour by Brandon was able to continue for so long. All of the families expressed their sadness and times anger at what had happened in Stillwater Services and sought some assurance that this would not happen again. Many of the families who met with the review team were concerned about the shame and stigma associated with sexual abuse and had indicated that for that reason they had not shared the disclosure of abuse with extended family. These families were particularly keen that the report should not come into the public domain. There was, however, one family who expressed the wish to have uh, the anonymised report published to ensure openness and transparency for the future protection of all residents of disability services.
4: In relation to the full report, uh, Minister Rabbit is seeking advice from the Attorney General as to whether she can publish it either fully or in redacted form. Uh, the HSC at the moment says that's not possible, uh, but Minister Abbott isn't uh, accepting that at this point in time and is seeking advice from the Attorney as to whether she can publish it in full or if not in full, at least in redact- redacted form. Um, the HSC has confirmed that it, it has uh, put some help in place uh, to help families uh, during what will be a very difficult time for them and to answer any queries they may have. Families have been contacted by psychology or social work staff who had been known to them since 2018. And a contact phone number has being provided to families with any calls being answered by a psychologist.
3: It seems uh, that Brandon's behaviour was reported to the Garda on four occasions. Uh, the first of uh, those occasions was in 2011 when a nurse manager met with a, a, Garda, station in, uh, a Garda sergeant in uh, the local station. But there was no evidence of any HSE follow-up on that report. Uh, Another uh, report is said to have happened in 2017. Uh, but it's undocumented and it is something that a service manager says they remember happening in July. Uh, Um, Garda Sioghana were contacted again in 2018 when a service manager met with a Garda liaison to Stillwater Services and briefed her on the outcome of a look-back review. And then in 2019, Um, Garda Sioghana confirmed to the HSE that they're completing an investigation regarding Brandon uh, and Garda Shia-Kana replied to, to the review team saying there's an ongoing investigation into allegations of abuse of patients at Stillwater. The
4: safety and protection of vulnerable people in the care of the state is paramount. And the government's first concern and that of Minister Rabbit is to ensure that the needs of the current residents are being prioritised. It's important that lessons are learned and that changes are made. And the focus must be on ensuring that the findings and recommendations of the report are implemented. The Agency has assured the Minister that there is no ongoing risk to service users and that national governance and accountability structures to oversee the implementation recommendations arising from the report. Uh, are now in place.
3: And these are just some of uh, the things uh, that the review team found. Uh, A number of residents in Stillwater Services were subject to sustained sexual abuse by another resident Brandon over a prolonged period of time during his residency. Brandon was uh, discharged in 2016. It is clear from the evidence, the team says, that this occurred with the full knowledge of staff and management of the facility at that time. It was eventually brought to light by the actions of a whistleblower who approached a public representative on the 7th of October 2016 who in turn brought it to the attention of the general manager in the county's disability services. This resulted in a look-back review being conducted to establish the facts and the extent of Brandon's behaviour. The review team were subsequently commissioned to carry out the review uh, into the government's arrangements in the facility and understand why the situation had continued over a period of years without any effective action being taken by the management during Brandon's residency to stop and prevent these highly traumatic assaults. It really is a truly disturbing story.
4: In re- relation to a debate and discussion in the Dáil, I think that would be entirely appropriate for us to do that. Uh, perhaps when the Doll resumes in the new year and people have a chance to consider the report, uh, but, of course, the allocation of time is, um, uh, is a matter
0: for the Business Committee.
3: And the doll went into recess yesterday. That's astonished to Leo Radker, promising a debate on that when the doll resumes in the new year.
0: Michael Reed on LMFM. Now,
3: as you've been hearing on LMFM's news, an interim examiner has been appointed to, to Premier Perry Glaze in Drogheda. Willie Quigley is regional officer with uh, the Unite Trade Union, which represents many of uh, the workers in Premier Perry Glaze. He's on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Willie, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. What's the situation there?
9: Good morning, Michael. And morning to your listeners. Well, The situation is, as as you have described it, and as uh, LMFM has has described it in the news bulletins, but in reality, uh, you know, it's a concerning situation. It's not something that we just thought was so close, but uh, it's there at this moment in time. And uh, we would see it uh, uh, with, 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 you know, the idea that the examiner is not the, the worst first announcement that you could hear. And if the examiner uh, can uh, work some sort of a, a system whereby the, uh, this can be staved off, uh, that's what the workers would look forward to. But mm-hmm. at the moment, it's very, very concerning, particularly at the time of year.
3: You well, know, there's a, a huge level of, of debt that uh, has been incurred. Is that because of COVID and how they shut the plant down on a number of occasions? Well,
9: most companies does have debt because most companies has arrangements that they pay bills every so often and all of that. So this company may be no different than that but we do understand there is debts and all of that. But nevertheless what uh, we want to come out of this is the examiner to find a way in the three months because the examinership generally runs that period of time of uh, a survival plan for this company mm. that 's the way we are looking at it, but we 're not na- naive enough to think that um, you know it 's all going to be rosy and it 's very very simple that 's not the case. The place is closing down for a month, and um, those closures have happened uh, you know you will recall i 'm sure fairly clearly the, yeah. the strike the nine month strike really, really happened because of lack of engagement around uh, the type of closure. And those closures are uh, a necessity, it would seem now, every so often, unless things turn up uh, very much better for for, for the future. But and I'm sure workers could survive with that uh, for some time, uh, you know, a couple of weeks here and there. But uh, the aspiration is that the examiner will find a way and... Uh, you know get uh, customers to agree a mechanism that will help this 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 survive and i would say at this moment in time that uh, if there's anything politicians can do that, that's listening or is aware of it uh, they should be doing it and they should be tackling it already
3: was it a mistake to strike
9: no, I, I wouldn't think the strike was a mistake in any shape make or form. The strike was brought about uh, by somebody who is not there now and who has uh, fled the nest. Uh Almost uh, before the strike was over, uh, and uh, there's no doubt about that. Anybody that was closely involved will know that. Um, however, I have to say, since the strike, the relationship with management has improved and has been very good, and there's been uh, a lot of engagement over that period of time. And both sides understand where the company is at, and both sides uh, absolutely want and have a very, very strong desire. Uh, The primary apparatus comes out of this and is around for
3: many, many years to come. And what's the sense at this stage? Uh, Because we're talking about debts, uh, I understand from uh, the reports, of over €6 million. So there's uh, a big challenge ahead. But what's the sense, Willie? Is there a sense that Premier Pariglase can return to its former glory or that there will be restructuring of some sort and some jobs will be lost as a result of that Or is there a sense of doom and
10: gloom?
9: Well, rather than describe it as doom and gloom, Michael, um, I would believe there's a very, very um, resolute uh, workforce in Premier Pericles. And as you know, the nature of it, it it takes X amount of people uh, to run the show. And uh, for a long time now, we have been saying that uh, numbers have been cut to the bone Now, how management will find a way of of cutting that any further, I don't know, and run the place, you know, in a way that that, uh, it needs to be, and in a way that uh, secures its future, depending on what the examiner can do. Um, The numbers definitely, you know, are, are, I suppose, as near to the bottom as could be. But rather than doom and gloom, I think people there are so resolute that... uh, they want, uh, and I think the town wants it. The county wants it. The survival of that place has been around a long time, yeah. and and people see it as a major, major industry. Well, oh, wow, forty
3: f- five years uh, and nearly a hundred jobs, ninety four employees, is it?
9: Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm. There's no doubt about that, and that, that's why this, the you know, the town needs this. The workers need this, and uh, rather than doom and gloom, there would be uh, very, very concerned workers there. Uh, at the moment, but uh, I I think the doom and gloom is not there yet, and uh, you know, I've dealings with uh, Mr Neil Hughes of Taker Billy before or or Baker Tilly Mm. and uh, I'm hoping that they uh, will do their level best to ensure that uh, Premier Pericles is around for a long time Okay, but you're
3: expecting some restructuring at least, I take it
9: Um, Whatever has to happen in terms of a way forward whatever's needed the unions won't be found wanting because we have to understand that it, it you know things are not the way they used to be and um, whatever we can contribute to it the workforce will be up for that yeah. in a way in a way that they're satisfied with but protection of the jobs and the continuation of the plant is the aspiration of everybody at the moment
3: okay well as you say i'm sure there's a, a lot of support for the employees locally Uh, especially so close to Christmas uh, to be in uh, this situation. Uh, We'll all hope uh, uh, that they'll come out the other side and have a a prosperous new year. Willie, thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Willie Quigley, Regional Officer with uh, the Unite Trade Union. Thanks to Frank in Navin. He's uh, one of uh, the people who's called us today. We've had a a few calls today, actually. And uh, thanks, Frank, as I say, for taking the time uh, to give us uh, a call. Frank says he really fails to see how closing the pubs and restaurants at five o'clock is going to make a difference, especially in restaurants where people are sitting with uh, their own group and not mixing. Just seems to be grasping at straws at this stage. Uh, he says he'll be surprised if uh, the government accepts this recommendation. Well, that's a, a, an interesting prospect, all right, Frank. Uh, of course, the government doesn't have to accept the recommendation. Uh, Grania Indrahada says, I thought vaccinations were going to make the difference that we wouldn't have to have the same restrictions as last Christmas, but here we are. Where is it all going to end? Really fed up, says Grania. Welcome to the gang, Grania. Uh, Maeve and Dundalk says, why the talk about closing schools? The children look forward to the last few days in school as they have quizzes, Christmas jumper days and so on. It's the one time of the year that they really enjoy school. Thanks, uh, Maeve. I think the children enjoy school all year round. (laughs) It's not like when we were at school, Maeve. Uh, Philip says, most of the publicans will have their stock already ordered in and delivered. Why can't they just reduce the number of people in the pubs? There'll be more house parties. Now, if the pubs are closed, it doesn't make sense. To Philip to do that. Well, thanks for that. Jerry Floyd says in an email to us, mm. and era is down, era is up, and era is down again, era is up, and era is down again, having no fun with Houlihan's call. Welcome to Gulag Ireland, he says. Thanks, uh, Jerry, for confusing me this morning.
1: Uh, I am going to wish him uh, a happy Christmas. Uh, I, I have an issue that has been brought up to me by uh, some of my younger constituents, and obviously that's the fact that we have had supply chain issues that have also been caused Um, by Brexit and worries and that's in relation to a a certain Santa Claus. We we hope that the Minister uh, and his colleagues in government will be engaging from a point of view of ensuring that there will be no difficulties as regards the problems we have with the Irish protocol. There will be no visa difficulties and we assume that uh, public liability insurance issues that may arise in relation to uh, Santa Claus and its workers uh, have been looked at and have been dealt with and that the government can ensure uh, my uh, younger constituents that uh, the, the difficulties that we are facing in the wider world will not be impacting in relation to the supply chain and Santa Claus. I think it'll be okay once it doesn't damage my roof. Uh, <laughs> i good. And what I will say, I, I do
10: want to uh, thank Deputy Amorakou for raising that timely issue. And before I came in here, we did make a phone call to Lapland and the government in Lapland have told us there's no insurance required uh, whatever for anybody in land, anybody who ever has an accident, which has never happened because uh, Santa Claus and Mrs. Claus make sure all the helpers are fully protected and there's never been an insurance claim and that policy will carry out no matter where they go in the world. I think the United Nations uh, made that clear decades ago and I think all the children would be quite uh, satisfied. The domestic border between Ireland or between Russia and Mongolia or China or any other country doesn't exist with well, the sat-navs that are used from that plan. So all the children can be fully assured that all the children will get here uh, and get their presents when they wake up on Christmas morning. And I want to thank you uh, for raising that issue, to put that to, uh, to bed once and for all. And I want to thank the deputies for their cooperation. And if I don't see any of you between now and the new year, best, best wishes for the festive season. be a little bit uh, less expansive than we'd hoped but let's
3: hope we all have a good Christmas, nevertheless. There you go, some great news for all of the children from some giddy politicians in the doll yesterday, Sean Fleming, Angus O'Snuddy and Rory Murcu.
0: Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. It's
3: one of those things. It doesn't matter how many times you hear it, it doesn't get any less shocking. Uh, And we've all heard the estimates uh, that uh, the National Children's Hospital is going to cost two billion euro, or possibly even more.
11: Have you to date considered such a figure, and is such a figure referenced in the report? that you have that we've requested
3: This is Sinn Féin's Imelda Munster speaking at the Public Accounts Committee yesterday putting that question to the most senior civil servant in the Department of Health
5: Uh, We've we've set out very clearly what we think the estimate is uh, for the hospital uh, and for the the related satellite works and the integration works uh, and we've also identified that there is a risk uh, a significant risk uh, given the delay in the project and the project is is delayed uh, as you know uh, likely into 2024 now, and that would increase the cost of the project. There are ongoing issues now. Okay,
3: and to Robert this. Watt had a, a lot to say, and he went on and on and on and on. But uh, what about the £2 billion? Imelda press for an answer.
11: Thanks. And just to get back to the question about the £2 billion, is that figure referenced at all within the report that you have?
5: No, no like, we're not, we're not, uh, as you said previously, we're not speculating, uh, we don't think there's any benefit in us at this day speculating on what on what the estimate.
3: Hmm, what does he mean? Uh, I'm not sure Imelda Munster understood. Both
11: the department and yourself and the board of the National Children's Hospital have both written to the committee um, indicating that you'd be able to discuss updated costings once a report was completed. Now, that report is with yourselves. Um, can you provide us with that report?
3: Robert Watt hesitated. Uh, uh,
11: I... I can. I can, of course, provide
5: it to you.
3: Mm. Yeah, well, Woody
5: But I, I've i said repeatedly that I don't think that's something which is going to represent the interests of the taxpayer or the state. Well,
11: Clearly, from the point of view of a public accounts committee, I mean, I think you have the report since May, is that right?
5: Yeah, there the, are the, the iterations of the report, yeah, and it has evolved, but it's, it's been... It's been It's been uh, uh, in final form or close to final form for a while now. Yes. So
3: he has the report. He's had the report since May. There's estimates in it. uh, Those estimates may say two billion. They may not say two billion. But will he give the report to to the Public Accounts Committee?
11: Can you give absolute confirmation that you'll forward that report to the committee?
5: (laughs) I I, I can't, uh, Deputy. Look, I I think ultimately it's up for 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 yourselves and it's up for the government. If, If. if, if the Taoiseach and the Minister for Public Expenditure Reform, and the Minister for Health uh, want us to send the report, and if, if, if the Public Accounts Committee believe this is a sensible thing to publish this report, if this is the public interest to publish this report,
11: well then you I would, would do You'd uh, imagine from a public purse perspective that would be um, of interest to publish the report. It would definitely be of interest,
5: but it's not in, in the interests of the taxpayer to provide information out there which might undermine the ability of the, the board. To to argue against the various claims and to negotiate,
3: and the reason for that is that Amelda Munster and others might leak that information. Amelda Munster is on the line, and a very good morning to you. I think it's clear you're not going to get that report or the official estimate of two billion or whatever the actual estimate is.
12: Well, we're not going to stop um, looking for it. That's that's for starters. Um, We've to go to the minister, uh, you know, to, to try and get it. And um, I even asked if he'd provide it on a confidential basis. Mm. Um, well, and he obviously doesn't way.
3: trust the members of the Public Accounts he, Committee.
12: I mean, for goodness' sake! I mean, the whole thing is like the department had had always given us estimated costs in 2016. They they had said that it was approximately 800 million, and in 2018 they were able to tell us as well. I think it was up to nine eighty eighty two or eighty three million, and in 2019 then they were they were able to tell us again the estimated cost was what. They had furnished the package, which was uh, 1.4 billion, but the problem is Mike, the, there's been a change in the department's attitude since this new SECGEN took over, and it appears that it's closing down um, it's closing down openness and transparency and blocking the public accounts committee from doing our job by stonewalling us. Well, because he the says- department has, has always furnished hmm. estimated costs.
3: Well, yeah, but he's uh, got a problem with these outstanding claims. Uh, This is the argument, at least, isn't it? Uh, And uh, if people can think they can claim more, well, then they're going to come back and claim even more again. So if the estimate is £2 well, then it could go up to £2.5
12: No, but the, the thing about the claims is there'll be an independent adjudicator deciding on claims there, you know, and then it can go to the High Court. But the thing is, Also, in relation to inflation, like inflation was up until recently running at 4.5% and now reckon it's at approaching 9%, you know, and the the, the state will have to pay that, you know, in relation to um, commercial construction and materials and that. And there's no reason why they can't tell us that. There's absolutely no reason whatsoever. But the board of the National Children's Hospital had indicated to the public mm. accounts committee before that they'd look forward to discussing it with us. You know, and I asked them then later on when I got back in to um ask further questions, I asked them if, if we invite the board in before us in the new year will he block them too from discussing its contents, you know. But um it's it was staggering the amount of stonewalling mm. that was done yesterday, you know, um and we've we've been working on this, trying to get either the the HSC and the department, you know, we've been looking for that report since it was furnished to them since last May. Yeah. And they've had no joy, you know, and... I mean, well, that's
3: it's, it's, a, Well, you've had no joy because um, they've said it'll cost the taxpayer to give you that information.
12: No, as I it's said... It's commercially
3: you, sensitive information. No, yeah.
12: No, as I said to you, Mike, the department had always given estimated costs always, year. you know, the years. From two thousand and sixteen um up until two thousand and nineteen the only thing that's changed in the department is the attitude of the new SecGen, that mm. he doesn't seem to want to divulge this information and that leads you to you know the perception out there that it could indeed end up being the most expensive children 's hospital in the world well it probably Neither will be
3: because he, yeah. he did he did agree with you that it'll be more than the official estimates on record yeah. at least that 's what one point seven Uh, Billion. So he said it'll be more than that.
4: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So two
3: billion isn't uh, going to be too far off the
12: mark. Even a couple of weeks ago, the minister for uh, public expenditure had refused to rule out the two billion figure, and the and I said that to me yesterday. And the the fiscal advisory council had provided an estimate in excess of two billion. So why the department just can't come out and say, look, an estimated cost? Because each time they estimated over the years it went up significantly.
3: Why why, why do you need to know this information now? Will it be any cheaper if you find out that it's going to cost 1.7 or 2 billion or whatever their estimate is? Or will it be more expensive, as he says, if you get the information?
12: No, for the reasons I've outlined, that wouldn't Mm. be the case. But we want to find out. That's why we wanted to look at the report to see exactly what way the figures were going. We want to find out if the department or the board had, say, messed up on something in the project, you know, um, or somewhere, and if that's what's going to cost more. But it's the utter stonewalling mm. that leaves you even more um, concerned. Well, about getting he, he, our hands on the report to see, you know, and how they, they manage.
3: Why do you think um, he's doing that, uh, other than what he has told you? I mean, he says it's for commercially sensitive. Uh, foolish to put commercially sensitive information into the public domain. It'll end up costing more if you do that. We, we he said he'd give you the information when the when the hospital is three quarters built.
12: No, we weren't looking for details on the claims or anything like that. You know, other than the estimated cost of those claims. And he said the claims. He'd said there was nine hundred and twenty claims uh, with a value of over half a billion, and seven hundred of them had been settled. But it's our understanding that the 200 odd that remain are the big ones. Okay. You know, and I think he said, uh, I think now I stand to be corrected on that because it was a long mm. meeting. Uh, I think he said four claims, uh, four individual claims that cost 4 million. Mm. But in relation to inflation... That but I presume no he's reason-
3: hoping to, to settle them and um, his fear is that he'd settle them uh, at a, a lower price. Uh, if the contractors knew how much had been set aside to settle these claims?
12: No, you can understand that. We weren't looking for details and claims of that. But as I said, the department always gave the estimated costs Mm. year on year. And the only thing that's changed now is this new SecGen's attitude and stonewalling the Public Accounts Committee—it's in our interest, and mm. it's, it's our job. We've an obligation. on I know,
3: well, but of the but if I'm making a claim against you for a thousand euro, and then I find out you've two thousand euro put aside for it, surely I'll come back to you and say I've changed my mind. I want to open my claim to two thousand euro.
12: Yeah, no. but we weren't—we weren't actually looking for details on the claims. I mean, okay. that's that's already in the public domain. He said that yesterday: nine hundred and twenty claims with a value of half a billion euro. He said all that, we're looking for the estimated cost in relation Mm. to inflation and whether or not there was something messed up along the lines, something that they have Mm. to change. You know, when I had asked for him to furnish us with the report confidentially, I was giving him the option of giving it to the Public Accounts Committee that we could scrutinize it, you know, confidentially. And he still refused to do that. Mm. But previously they'd said that they would, you know, once the report, they'd said, and he, in, in fact, had said it himself um, in correspondence to the pack, that once they received the report, they will furnish us with the estimated cost. He'd said that there was um, a long, detailed analysis that they were carrying out uh, and the cost of the project, and once that was done, but as soon as we discovered that they had the report it was the board that told us that the the report had gone to the department and as soon as we started looking for the report that's when the stonewalling began.
3: Okay well Robert Watt is uh, as I said uh, the most uh, senior civil servant in uh, the Department of Health Uh, and uh, the Secretary General uh, enjoys a, a massive salary of €292,000. That in itself is being controversial because it saw him get a, a pay increase of €81,000 and he was speaking about that yesterday at your uh, committee. What did he have to say about it?
12: Well, my colleague um, Deputy Matt Carthy had, had asked him about uh, his pay rise. He'd got a pay rise of 81000 um, and he's the most, He's of all the sec gens, he's the only one on that salary. And he was brought in on an interim basis, which was kind of a a shoddy way of securing the post for him the way that he was, he was brought in. But the deal was done anyway, and there was no accountability for it, the 81,000, you know, that's in excess of every other Secretary-General. But my colleague, Deputy Matt Carty, had, had asked him, because Mr Watt had indicated that he'd waived the salary increase for the duration of COVID, you know, for mm. the duration of the pandemic. And all Deputy Carty asked was, does this remain to be the case? And sure, he almost lost the plot then. Like, he, he didn't want to discuss it at all. And when I got an opportunity to come back in, I had said that it seems to be a touchy matter. And he went ballistic again, but he refused to, um, to discuss it. Um, and, you know, under our remit, salaries can be discussed, you know, when we're examining the accounts for mm. each department. Salaries can be discussed. But, that the Public um, Accounts
3: Committee can examine uh, the pay of public servants. We
12: can ask. We can yeah. ask questions about yeah. it, yeah, yeah, and particularly yeah. about this. But what we can do now, we we can have them back in. You know, I think possibly March, um, and we can discuss that again. You know, his salary, but he point blank refused, saying, "Oh, I'm not here to discuss this today." You, you set out clearly what was to be discussed today, but we can really ask anything. Hmm. Was okay. there in, but he was he was going on the basis oh this wasn't on the agenda but oh, all okay. Deputy Carthy had asked was have you you know, have you still waived your salary okay. increase So you,
3: you, that you was you, enough for him you, to you, you, you may ask about it in three months from now, it's interesting because uh, in about three months from now uh, Mr Watt will have earned €90,000, uh, that salary of €292,000 mm. uh, you would uh, imagine uh, is what he's receiving uh, despite that commitment yes. uh, to waive that 81000 He had
12: mm if he was continuing to waive the salary increase, Mm. you'd imagine he would have said, oh, yes, deputy, I have waived that and I continue Mm. to do that. But instead, he went ballistic for being asked it. And I worked it out on a salary of 292 now. I don't know if my figures are correct. But he's on, Mike, he's on 1100 a day. Mm. 1100 a day. So I think it was, uh, it worked out 5,600 a month is a salary if he's taken the, the, okay. the increase. Well I mean, you couldn't even spend that money. And then he comes into the Public Accounts Committee and stonewalls us about the cost of the National Children's Hospital.
3: OK. Well, we'll uh, return to this by the sounds of it in the new year. We leave there for now. And thanks, as always, for joining us on the programme. Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Me, the Mellamunster.
0: Michael
3: Reed on LMFM. The Road Safety Authority has uh, published uh, the latest road safety strategy, which it hopes will cut the number of deaths on our roads by half—a fifty percent reduction in road deaths by 2030. The chief executive officer of the RSA is Sam Wade. A very good morning to you, Sam. Thanks for joining us on the program this morning. Thank
1: you, Michael.
3: How do you hope to achieve that target?
1: So, Michael, what we've set out is a programme of work over the, the next uh, 10 years, the strategy, and that, as you say, to reduce fatalities and serious injuries by 50%. We've got 50 high-impact actions, and that's across and agreed and working with communities, with Ngarda shikana the RSA, TII, and other agencies and the councils to ensure that those high-impact actions uh, deliver that reduction of um, that 50%, and it's not just the fatality reduction; it's a serious injuries, which has been an, an ongoing and persisting uh, um, challenge. But also uh, for for victims of, of road collisions, uh, people who have life-changing serious injuries. And and it's across the full spectrum of road users. This isn't just about drivers. This is about pedestrians, about cyclists and and other road users who, um, during and post-COVID in particular, um, there's a different profile and people are using our roads in a different way.
3: Mm, It's the unreported story uh, the story that's never spoken a- about but so many lives change in uh, the blink of an eyelid or can change in the blink of an eyelid yes
1: and mm-hmm. and, and and what what i would say michael is on uh, what we've observed and and what the data and what the evidence is suggesting is that per behaviours continue on our roads in ireland and we have as part of developing these high impact actions We've looked at what others have done. We've looked at international best practice. We've looked at our neighbours and and EU member states. And and these actions, and I'll I'll give you a few examples. Speed speed continues to be... A a, a continuing per behaviour with with road users and particularly vehicle users and that's one of the the, the key areas within those 50 high impact actions is looking at speed and how we can actually address the problem with speed not just through vehicle technology but also uh, more effective enforcement um, so that so that we can actually ensure that the roads are safer for everyone, because no one particular group of road user has has a privacy, primacy here. It's a case of everyone. It's a shared space for mm. everyone.
3: And of course, that depends on the conditions, uh, because uh, you may be safe driving at 120 kilometers an hour on a motorway, but that changes if you're not on a, a motorway. And you're talking about reducing speed limits uh, in urban areas uh, to 30 kilometers.
1: Yes, and, and that that, that is a case of there one one of the actions within uh, the next four years in particular is reviewing the speeds, including the thirty-kilometer speed zones. Um, now, the thirty-kilometer would be and is in in high um, high-density built-up urban areas, but that actually that, that focus is really aligned with other European countries and around the world, where there's many cities now defaulting to 30 kilometres per hour. But what I would say, and, and to, to you and your listeners, um, it's not just about the urban areas, because the, this, the review of speeds will be looking across all of the speeds. Um, what we've found, and the data and evidence suggested, that rural roads, and when I say rural roads, that's 80 kilometres and above, the highest percentage of driver fatalities is on an 80 kilometre or above um, speed zones across the country. And that's something that, as part of that speed review, we'll be reviewing, what else can be done in terms of speed-activated signs, um, average speed cameras, and there's a number of actions which have been identified to consider, review, and and implement so that actually we can uh, bring people to use the roads in a safer way. And you rightly point out the the driving conditions as a significant factor, and so... A, a speed limit isn't, you know, we, you just don't follow the speed limit. You have to adjust your driving behavior um, yeah. to the conditions.
3: Yeah, and you don't need laws to do that. That's something you can decide to do. Uh, but some decisions are harder to make or to go ahead with, uh, despite how you feel. And if you feel safer driving at 50 kilometers at the moment or 30 kilometers, uh, where the speed limit may be 30 kilometers, you can find it very difficult to do it uh, because people behind you are not. In Press.
1: Well, well, there is a, in terms of changing behaviours. Uh, we we've identified um, with RSA carried out a, a survey with the public, and it's interesting that um, two thirds of the public have told us that, um, and, and, and essentially they're saying like so we're fed up observing per behaviour when you're out using the road, whether you're a pedestrian, a cyclist, a vehicle driver. Two thirds of the public have told us. That they would be supportive of harsher penalties penalties mm-hmm. for per, per behaviour, and, and the three particular areas are speeding. The second one is the use of mobile phones, and and the third one is essentially that not wearing seatbelts, which again is uh, a, a behaviour a per yeah. behaviour which um, is in some ways hard to understand that people. Uh, recognise not wearing a seatbelt well, as It's acceptable.
3: so foolish, it really is incredible to think that people don't do that uh, but they don't, uh, for whatever the reason is uh, convincing them otherwise uh, is easier said than done perhaps.
1: No, Now, within, and, and, um, within those, those 50 high-impact actions, we've identified a, a large programme of education and awareness. Mm. And we, do, uh, we have planned to work in partnership with, with local authorities and councils and other agencies and, and the likes of groups like Age-Friendly Ireland to, to work with those groups to actually design pro- education programmes to shift and change that behaviour. Mm. The seatbelts is 26% yep. of fatalities... Um, in in cars was because people weren't wearing a seatbelt. That's a a typical family going out, uh, four people in a family or four friends going out for an evening and, and one of those people mm. in the car weren't wearing a seatbelt. Absolutely, and I don't
3: think, of, there's, yeah. there's no way I can dispute that, uh, but I, I think you always run the risk with these things, that you're either preaching to the converted or you're talking to people who won't listen. And I think the facts of this have been established and established long ago. The roads are much safer if people buy the speed limits and don't drive at excessive speeds for that matter. You don't drink and drive, you wear your seatbelt, you're not on your phone, uh, etc. That the Car is, is uh, roadworthy and so on, uh, but we continue to have these problems. You're also talking about having an online portal where people will be able to upload footage of dangerous driving as they perceive it. Uh, you could have some very serious constitutional problems and legal problems with such a, an effort.
1: So, in terms of the online portal, um, first of all, this is this is happening across other European countries and EU member states. Um, as we are currently, uh, when there is a road collision, and Garda Shikona ask for um, anyone who has da- dash cam footage uh, to share uh, to, to help uh, in investigate uh, particular collisions and. And uh, the underlying cause of the collision, where there, 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 there may be a serious injury and worse still, a fatality. So, so that is an area that's going to be explored. Um, there, there will be, there, there may be, and, and and I would expect will be challenges and and potential blockages. But that's for the the agencies around the table to to work together to ensure that we do it in in a in a, a way that's not breaking any rules. It's done in a legal way. But ultimately, mm. you but know, you GDPR your GDPR regulation is about. This is about saving lives, Michael. Mm.
3: Oh, and I understand, where, but you have GDPR um, regulation a- across Europe. Uh, I mean, you can't even uh, use CCTV to catch people littering, uh, let alone share footage of people on the internet uh, without their permission.
1: And th- and this is th- this is where we've been very open in in the fifty high impact actions. We've identified areas that. Uh, may or will require primary and, and secondary legislative changes and, and jointly we're fully committed, uh, uh, all of the agencies, the RSA and garda the court service all of the, the organisations involved are fully committed to address where need be and we've got that mandate that if primary and legislative and secondary legislation is re- is required, so that mm. we do it in a, a legal way, then that that okay. is within the strategy as set yeah. out uh, over I'd, the next. I suggest years
3: to you though, Sam, that it may be a, a bigger problem than that uh, because uh, you may be looking at European legislation because of uh, GDPR.
1: I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm glad you raised that, Michael, because what we're doing, this this strategy has been developed not just with the agencies and organisations in Ireland. We've been working with the EU Commission and we continue to work with the EU Commission and, and the likes of the European Safety mm. Transport Council. And, and that will continue to identify what changes are required because I agree with you, data and the sharing of data, it has to be done in, in, in a legal way. Yeah. But I'll keep bringing it back to... Uh, this is about saving lives, yep. and this is about reducing serious injuries and fatalities. Mm-hmm. And if there's legislative changes required to achieve to to actually achieve that, then that's what's required to to ultimately re- reduce those um, serious injuries and fatalities on our roads.
3: Okay, it's something
1: don't... that Michael, th- that I I shared. Uh, I, I met a, a victim uh, recently. And 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 this is bringing it back to how how it affects your listeners, how it affects you and I and our friends and family. It, it is a case of bringing it back to doing whatever we need to do to actually reduce the collisions and that trauma. Um, well, that that, and, that 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 is and Michael, the point. We, Michael, we, we, and me, we, we, who who I spoke with, mm. um, he, he he and he may be one of your listeners. Oh, he is. Of um, course I so. asked the mm-hmm. question. I asked the question. Mm-hmm. Um, how does it feel? It's like does it ever get any easier? And and the answer was that it's happened 20 years ago, Sam. And every day it feels like it only happened yesterday. And I don't want anyone, anyone in this country or in either me, to to experience that. And and we need to work together in partnership to ensure that those those blockers yeah. are removed
3: yeah. and, and that we can
1: achieve the 50% yeah. reduction
3: Okay, and Michael O'Neill of course uh, uh, a good friend of uh, the programme and great advocate for road safety uh, and uh, I'm sure he'll uh, be very happy uh, that uh, you mentioned him in that context uh, this morning Sam, I suppose the reality of it all is we don't need laws, we don't need regulations, we don't need changes uh, implemented by the state not necessarily so because uh, the change is in our hands. We can decide how we want to behave every time we go on the road and that can lead to a change in the amount of incidents, accidents, life-changing and life-ending incidents and accidents uh, for that matter. And we wish you luck uh, in your endeavours and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Sam Wade is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Road Safety Authority of Ireland.
0: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
3: FM. Over 10,000 households are under a boil water notice who are being supplied by the trim water treatment plant let's speak once again to michael kniff asset operations lead with irish water good morning michael thanks for joining us on the program this morning nobody ever wants this but terrible in the run-up to christmas what can you tell us
2: Um, good morning michael and thank you for having me on Um, so just to give you an overview of what happened um on Wednesday, late Wednesday night, um, we did have a unique mechanical breakdown of Trim Water Treatment Plant. Our fail-safes did kick in and the plant automatically shut down. Um, from that point, we were relying on our reservoir, uh, the water in our reservoir in Bray Hill, um, to sustain and maintain water supply. Unfortunately, um, by the time we were able to um, fix and repair the issue, um, it was late into last night. Um, we had to bring in a water restriction or water outage for last night and there was some compromise on our disinfection process and until we've got fully resolved and the plant is stable um, we've had to bring in a precautionary boil water notice.
3: And when you say boil, you mean boil it as if you're boiling it in a kettle. Use a kettle if you can and then cool it. Correct. By putting it in the fridge.
2: Yes, or let it Mm. sit in the counter naturally. um this is simply just to um safeguard safeguard the, our, our
3: our water supply right so that, and that's for drinking uh drinking uh other drinks that are made with water for salads or for brushing your teeth uh, for making ice uh, or anything like that uh, you should be making sure that it's boiled well in advance or, or, or don't use it as the case may be because it'll make you sick I take it
2: um I there's there's potential indeed because um, if the disinfection process is compromised, you um, there, you could have a you could have a potential where there could be E. coli remaining or Cryptosporidium in the water. So, hence the boil water notice is to protect that. And our priority is always to safeguard public health and to remember that this is in consultation with the HSE and their recommendation to. Bring in this precautionary mm-hmm. boil water notice.
3: Is there any risk that uh, anybody has uh, already had some can- canta- can- beg your pardon, contaminated water to drink?
2: No, I, I do not think so because okay. immediately the, when the issue uh, took place, the plant had shut down. Um, immediately, there's no water being sent to the reservoir. So you're relying on good quality water within the reservoir and that has 24 hour storage and that's what have carried, uh, have maintained supply up until the reservoir. Uh, levels had depleted. Um, what we have done now is mm. that the plant is now currently back in production. Um, but and in order to build the reservoir reserves, um, we do need to bring in the boil water notice just simply to get water back out into the network, which we have started resupplying and recharging the network since this morning. So in in the in the event that there is any compromise or any potential that water quality is not is not good or or a potential impact to the customer we've had to bring in this precaution of,
3: okay. of can, can you boil potatoes or that sort of thing?
2: I'm sure you can.
3: Yes. Okay, all right. Uh, and uh, as I said at the outset, uh, it's a little over a week to Christmas. Uh, when would you hope this will be resolved?
2: Um, I would be very hopeful. Looking at um, our operational assessment this morning, the plant is currently operational. We are, we are we're trying to peak as much production as we can to build the reservoir levels. Um, it's quite tight to be fair in trim so that's our number one objective is to get water back supplied into the network albeit under boil water notice but I would see certainly looking at what the trends are today and the quality of water that we're producing I would be hopeful um, certainly in, in consultation with the see that uh, if we will be able to lift it um, as soon as we can.
3: Mm. Any idea of a time frame?
2: I, it's in consultation with the HSC. Uh, mm. It'll be based on, on that output. But to be fair, we do need to demonstrate with water quality uh, sample and results, okay. which we are doing currently at this time.
3: Number of days, though, or could it go into weeks?
2: Uh, it's certainly, it certainly, it certainly. Um, it, it should be resolved this side of Christmas.
3: OK, say, that's, well. that's, that's what people wanted to hear, Michael. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, we, w- we won't hold you to it, but that's the hope. OK, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Michael Kniff, Asset Operations Lead with Irish Water. That's our programme for today. Hope you have a good weekend and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye.
1: The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at
10: lmfm.ie.
4: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance.